0: Father, we, uh, Lord, you're everything to us. And you, you are all that matters to us. And you're worth everything to us. And Christ in us is the hope of glory. And that's an amazing thing to contemplate because we are... It doesn't seem like that special, but you love us so much. And we pray that your spirit will be with us, Lord. We pray that you will um, give me wisdom as I preach today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Um, that song we sang, You Are Everything. You Are Everything. Um, and Christ in me, that reminded me, when I when I saw a poem, this is a little short poem that was written hundreds of years ago, it reminded me of that song, and this is how it goes. Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ inquired, Christ... In danger, Christ in hearts of all that love me, Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. This was written by a man who lived a long time ago in England. He grew up in a Christian home, but he wasn't following the Lord. He had no interest in Jesus, he had no interest in God. So as a teenager, he wasn't there. But then, at that time, England was unstable and they were getting uh, invasions from Ireland. And an Irish ship came down. They raided his village and captured him and took him away to be a slave in Ireland. And he served as a slave for 16 years as a shepherd. And when he was a slave going through that hard time, that's when he remembered what his parents had taught him. And he turned to the Lord for comfort. And he called out to the Lord and he spent time when he was watching the sheep meditating on the Lord and getting close to God. After 16 years as a shepherd, the Lord gave him a dream. And the dream... He was to escape and get on a ship and go to Ireland, uh, back to England. So he did that. He followed the Lord's leading. He escaped, got on a ship, went back to England, and he got trained as a as a priest in a monastery. Then he, <clears throat> after he served as a priest for a while, he had another dream. And this is interesting because. Steve had a series of dreams that led him to come here to San Jose and plant this church. He had another series of dreams that led him now to go to Abu Dhabi. Well, this man had a second dream. In the second dream, there was someone carrying a stack of letters from Ireland. And on one of those letters, there was a label, and the label said, The Voice of the Irish. And when he started to open the letter there was a voice that audibly spoke to him and said, Holy boy, please return to us. We need you. And he recognized this dream as having come from the Lord. So he obeyed, even though that meant going back to where he had been a slave. He didn't have very fond memories of that time, but he decided, the Lord's calling me. I need to do what he says. So he went back to, to the place where he had been a slave. Now, Ireland at that time had lots of different factions fighting with each other, and he had no alliances with any particular power. So he was at the whims and mercies of those people, and sometimes those leaders didn't treat him very well. They, uh, he spent times where he w- was imprisoned. He had all his possessions taken away. But he kept on faithfully serving and preaching the gospel. And probably a lot of you have guessed now who that person is. That was Patrick. We call him St. Patrick. So the Lord worked through slavery, through hard times, through losing everything, through not having the political alliances, through his difficulties and stress. God advanced the gospel and Ireland became Christian through, largely through, at least beginning through his work. That was around 400 A.D. Now you move ahead another 600 years. This time England was subject to Denmark. So Denmark was ruling over England. And they were raiding England again. And this time they were taking slaves back to be their wives. They brought women back to be slaves. To be their wives. And those wives, many of them were Christians, and they preached the gospel to their husbands. They were faithful wives, preached the gospel to their husbands, they started getting saved. Meanwhile, people went from England and traveled around Denmark to preach the gospel. And in Denmark, they weren't afraid of them because they had no political power, so they let them move around freely. And gradually, People in Denmark became Christian until the nation was converted largely and the gospel moved forward into Northern Europe and again, even further later on, into Russia. So we see the gospel advancing step by step, moving forward. That's what we heard last week the dynamic aspect of the gospel. So what we're going to talk about here today is 2 Corinthians 4, 7. And it says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So if you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand and, and the ushers will bring you a Bible. It'll be nice to follow along. I'm going to show all the verses on the screen, but... It'll be nice to see how they fit together. Because we're going to be looking at the context for this verse, starting with, what is that treasure? The treasure is the gospel. And that gospel is the message of grace. Grace in Jesus Christ bringing us the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to tell us, Um, after this passage or in the midst of this passage, he's talking about how to spread the gospel. And he talks about doing it through honest means and with humility. And oftentimes in order to accomplish that, we experience suffering. But that is well worth it because the, the treasure is far worth more than everything else. And we'll see that at the end of these passages. So I'm going to go through the context one by one. And and as we read these verses, we'll see that Paul gives us pictures, images, that help us to remember what he's saying. The first image that he gives us is that of a triumphal procession. I put a little picture on my PowerPoint as a modern-day procession. But what he would have been imagining... Is the the Greek Olympics? Somebody wins the Olympics, and he and they're wearing this this garland of flowers as they march along in victory. And as they have these flowers on their head, the fragrance is spreading out everywhere. So that's the image that he's presenting to us. And he says, "Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us." spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. In chapter 4, verse 1, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. So he's talking about the ministry of the gospel. And what is that message? Here he gives us another image. Actually, he gives us two images. Each time we're using the English word letter, but the Greek is two different words. The one letter is the letter that you would send to somebody in the mail. And that's the, the Greek word is the word we get our word epistle from. So he's saying, you are a letter from Christ. And the other word is letter like a letter in the alphabet. And the Greek word is the word we get our English word grammar from. And that, whoops, we lost our picture. But that is that second letter. He says that the, that's the letter of the law. So we read that with these two images in mind, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit brings gives life. And in verses 17 and 18, he says, Now the Lord is spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is Spirit. So the letter, you can imagine a list of rules that you have to follow one by one. That doesn't bring life. What brings life is the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is the Spirit of Jesus who comes into, in, into our hearts to lead us so that we have freedom to do the very things that we want to do so much, and those things please God, not because we have a set of rules, but because we act out of love. Well, how do we bring this gospel the gospel of Jesus Christ, where we're really not just bringing people a message in words. We're bringing them and introducing people to Jesus Christ so that they can enjoy the great treasure of knowing him just as we do. Well, here's how he says we need to bring that message. He says, we've renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So another image, that of a veil, so you can't see if you don't understand the Gospel. But that veil is lifted, and we come into the presence of God when we believe. And another aspect of how the Gospel message is brought forward is in humility. And I just want to say something about humility, and that is there's an element... Of humility that only comes when God puts us through trials. To some extent, we can try to discipline our minds when people say, "Oh, you're you're so great." You, you know, you you can discipline your mind and say, "No, that's I'm not going to let that get to my head. I know who I am, and I'm just a servant of the Lord." You can discipline your mind that way, but there's another aspect of our experience where God allows us to experience his purging and difficulties and trials in life. Because he knows that our pride can be all pervasive. It gets down into those corners where we don't see things that we don't understand about ourselves. And, and God will work those things out through us. So, he says in verses 5 and 6, For what we proclaim is not... Ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now we come to our verse. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So it's trials, difficulties, all these things that Paul's been experiencing. He sees them producing life in the believers and so we turn to the the reason why it's it's worth it whatever we endure in life is worth it whatever we endure for the gospel particularly is worth it so we do not lose heart though our outer self is wasting away our inner self is being renewed day by day For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So it's worth it, because we're looking forward to being in the presence of God forever, And when we carry the message of Jesus, the people who are receiving that message are going to be in the presence of God forever. And that brings us joy. So much that it doesn't matter. This is a light, momentary affliction. All the troubles and trials that we go through may seem very, very difficult. But in the end, we see greater value in the treasure that we're looking forward to. In the treasure that we have now in Jesus, knowing Him. Oops! What happened? Oh, yeah. So we come back to the verse again, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So now it becomes clear that we've looked at all the context, each phrase in this in this verse, has meaning. The treasure is the gospel of grace in Jesus. The treasure is Jesus himself whom we're introducing to other people so that they can have a relationship with him like we have. There's a power that goes with the gospel. In chapter 12, Paul said, "...the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works." But Paul, probably not wanting to, not wanting to um, say too much in detail about that because he doesn't want to brag about himself, he leaves out some of the details, but it's, it's filled in in Acts where Luke writes about what Paul was doing. And it says, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. So that's the power of the gospel. But the power of the gospel is God's, is not ours. And so it's through... The weakness of human flesh, and the trials and the things, the difficulties that we go through, that we see there's a there's a differentiation between the glory of God, and our humanity. So the vessels are plain, ordinary vessels, just ordinary human beings like you and me. But the treasure is Jesus, <clears throat> and. So I tell a little bit about the story that why I picked this verse to focus on what kind of led me to this point and why this was so meaningful to me. Just in the way of background, um, when I was working in China, I found that there were there was a, something of a vacuum of leadership there. People didn't want to take responsibility, so they would come to me, the foreigner, and say, what should, we, what should we do, what should we do? Always asking me to make the decisions for them. And gradually I realized that I can't just be making all the decisions, so I started asking them, what do you think we should do? You tell me. And then they would, usually they'd have better ideas than anything I would ever come up with, so I would just say, go, go for it, do it, that's great. And they became better and better at doing what they were doing. So by the time I came back, um, they were all working on their own, and they were doing a great job, That was recognized in my company. So a couple years after I got back, uh, my boss asked me to step up and take a lot more responsibility in the company. And as that was going on, um, there was a lot that had to be done in a short period of time. There was a lot of pressure on, and I was very, very busy, and um, in order to get things done quickly, <clears throat> you know we were uh, looking at lots of data, analyzing the data, trying to understand what it meant, and I would draw the conclusions from the data, and I would say, I think this means this, let's go, f- go for it. Let's do it. But what I failed to take into account was, you know when I was in China, I was in Asia. When I was back in the States, the particular group group or environment that I was in was about 80% Asian as well. So I had learned when I was in China that I needed to hold back my opinion so the other people would would give theirs and then say what I thought afterwards because otherwise if I said what I thought they wouldn't bother to tell me. They would just, say, you know, they would want to tell me what I wanted to hear so I had to hold back. But I wasn't holding back, I was just saying what I thought and that was leading people to think, hey, you're not listening to me because I'm not having a chance to speak. And we were in a short time scale trying to get things done. People wanted to tell their story. There wasn't time to do that unless we'd let work spill over into the evening hours. And that was a little bit challenging for me to accept. So I was running into into some conflicts there, some of which I didn't even know, most of which I didn't know about. Not only that, there's another um, element cultural element that I was overlooking, and that was probably a little bit more difficult for me to take in, to, to act on, which is uh, the Chinese call it Guanxi, Guanxi this concept of forming relationships with other people, and you do things nice for them and build an obligation with them so that they're going to do something good for you later on. That isn't always necessarily bad, except that Jesus told us to do those nice things and favors to people who can't pay you back. Right? But that's some people are really good at doing that. And so as certain uh, feedback or actually complaints would circulate, rumors would go around, then if you have all lots of network all over the place, the word will get back to one of those people and they'll say, hey, i got to protect this guy. I'm going to tell him what's wrong. But that there were holes in my network. So I didn't know about some of the complaints, and things fell apart when the complaints went to my boss because he had a better network than I did. So he got the complaints. He wasn't happy. I was demoted, taken out of that responsibility. And that was... Big challenge for me that happened about ten months ago. and so I've been wrestling through what what's the Lord doing in that process? You know i I want to serve him, I want to do the right thing, I want to glorify God in my company, but you know here I am failing. So what does it mean? Around a little bit after that, um, I've shared with with the church before. There was a uh, one of the guys that I used to that used to work for me. He uh, he went to the beach one weekend, and he went with his friends diving into the waves. And one of the waves came down a little harder than he expected, and it, it crashed him into the sand, and he broke his neck on the on the beach. And so he was a quadriplegic. And uh, now he's, after several months, he's gained just a little bit of motion in his upper arms. That's it. The rest of his body is, he can, I mean, he can move his neck, his head. That was really a challenge for everybody. And it's put me, you know, sent me to pray an awful lot for him. After he had recovered enough that I was able to go and visit him, I went to the hospital and he, he I was one of the first people he let to, to see him. And he was glad to see me and he, and he was eager to let me pray with him. And he said the time when he was in the hospital he remembered my faith. I didn't think that anybody had gotten any benefit from what I was doing. It seemed like I was just working all the time. But he remembered my faith, and he spent his time when he's laying in a hospital bed in pain and nobody around and nothing to do. He learned to call out to the Lord, just like Patrick did when he was on the hills or when he was watching the sheep and hadn't had to call out to the Lord. He learned to call out to the Lord, and and this is when he he developed a real stronger relationship with Him. There was a one of the uh, one of my colleagues who. Um, took over part of the responsibility that I used to have she was a, a Hindu lady and she was also very much impacted by this thing that happened a person paraple- quadriplegic and uh, but she she started to talk share with us she says I don't know what you guys do you pray she says I don't know who to pray to I meditate I, There's no, there's no god to pray to <laughs> So we, we had some of those conversations, and I can't say that it accomplished a lot, but you know, the Lord works... Well, sometimes it takes a long time. So I, I don't... What, what I can say is that you know, whether I was successful or a failure had no bearing at all on the work of God's kingdom going forward. Because God will accomplish His purpose... The vessel is not important. A little bit more in the way of my story. Back when I was in college, I used to go to the church that Alistair Begg preaches at. Um, You probably, some of you have heard him on the radio, Truth for Life. So I remember all the way back then this one sermon that he preached on Exodus 35. There was two men, Oholiab and Bezalel. And it seems like obscure names, but I, it stuck in my mind. I, I went back, I was thinking about these things, and I, I remembered all of a sudden, Oholiab, oh, let me look him up. Because what they did was <clears throat> they were skillful in making the... All the decorations, the gold, the woodwork, the embroidery that went into the tabernacle. And God gave them this gift that they could use it, and that would glorify God. I thought, that's really great. I want to be like that. So this is what, this is what the passage says. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord is called by name. Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Oholiab, son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan. And he has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted twined linen or by a weaver or by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Bezalel and Oholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary, shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. So that was the passage, and I thought, you know, this is great. You know, I can study hard, I can learn, I can do really well in what I do, and then I can glorify God, just like they did. But what I didn't notice at that time, and I I wouldn't blame Alistair Begg, that was 30 years ago, I I probably don't remember what he said. But what I noticed when I went back and read it recently. You look at all the verbs and all the actions. Who's the subject? It's the Lord. The Lord called Bezalel. The Lord filled him with the Spirit. Oops. The Lord, He inspired him to teach. He filled them with skill. The Lord put skill and intelligence in them. The only time that they do something, that they're the active subject of the verb, is they shall work. But in what way? In accordance with what the Lord commanded. So it's not my job to go and look like something great. It's my job just to obey. Just do what the Lord says. That's all. God will take care of the rest. He'll decide whether it looks good, like Oholeab and Bezalel, or whether it looks bad, like Paul did when he was being persecuted and run out of town and beaten. That's up to God. So God will give us skills, and sometimes we will see ourselves on that side where we're successful and we have a platform for the gospel. But very oftentimes we'll see ourselves on the other side, where we're not successful. We're not doing the greatest of everybody. But whether we look good or look bad is irrelevant because the important thing is that God is exalted. The treasure is what matters. The jar of clay doesn't matter. And another thing that there's a difference between the way that things were we're done in the old testament and the way that we see Jesus telling us in the old testament the tabernacle and then on into Solomon's temple the temple was beautiful structure in Jerusalem which was a city on a hill and it had this glory that people would come and they would want to see And they would say, this is a marvelous temple. And they'd give praise to God because they saw it. So it was an attractional model. And probably that was, I'm sure that was the best strategy because everything God does is right. But that strategy was used when there was a small community or people of God. But now it's different. God has given us the Holy Spirit. So Jesus' model, he's told us each of us is a city on a hill that can't be hidden. And he said we've got to let our light shine. But the light that he told us would shine is not our achievement. It's good works. So what we do in the Lord's name, he sends us out. It's like what we heard last week when Nick was preaching from John, John 7, and he said, Whoever believes in me, out of him will flow rivers of living water. Referring back, Jesus was referring back to Ezekiel 47, the rivers of living water flowing out from the temple. And now Jesus is saying, I'm that temple. And then he tells us that he's giving us the Holy Spirit, so each one of us is a temple Of the Holy Spirit and each one of us takes that living water and it's flowing out from us and bringing life where wherever we go so we not now we don't have one city on a hill to shine the glory of God we have millions and millions of cities you and me and every one of us is a temple of the Holy Spirit Who goes out and shines the light of the glory of Christ to the world so that his name is praised when we just obey and carry his message out to the world? I've been doing a little exercise where I write out a passage and then write it out in my own words, paraphrase it in my own words, and then then I write down what I'm going to do in response to that passage. I got this idea from City Team, and they're doing some discipleship ministries. So this was my paraphrase of the text. The absolutely precious gospel of Jesus is entrusted to the frail physical bodies of men and women like us. The reason the awesome is carried by the weak is so that it will be crystal clear that the infinite power in the gospel is from God and not from weak people like us. So the praise belongs to God, never to us, but that makes our life a lot freer because all we need to do when we do our work is to be sincere and do our best. God is going to bring about the outcome. If we look good or we look bad, I mean, we don't have control over all of those things. But God has control over everything. We don't have to worry about it. We just have to do our best because we're working for the Lord. We're not working for them. That's a big burden off of, off of my shoulders. I don't have to experience that pressure. So what I will do, that's, this is what I wrote in the last column, I'll cooperate with the purpose of God by exalting Jesus and accept that hardship and political failure comes with the territory. So I let God prove my weakness in order to demonstrate his power. And like John the Baptist, I can say he must become greater. I must become less. So with that, I leave you to fill in your part. What will you do in response to this message? And maybe back in your home groups you can talk it through. Father, you are everything to us. And you've given us your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you will enable us to do your will, to take your gospel message out into the world. And help us not to get discouraged when people shut us down, when we're not able to say as much as we would like to and We can't share our our hearts with people around us because they don't want to hear it. Help us not to get discouraged, but to be those source of living water because your Christ is in us. And let your, your life flow out from us into the world. Be with us, Lord. Because if you're with us, nothing else matters.